am yet to attain omnipresent supergalactic oneness. No. Wait. There it is. You've just attained it. I have. Yes. Just now. You are one. I can see it in your eyes. You're more one than anyone. Welcome to my podcast. Hi, this is the Joyful Podcast, and it is a raw journal of the mindful revolution. We're all experiencing this cultural shift, this collective uh, embrace of positivity and creativity. And I learned that because I was in need of personal inspiration and motivation. And from a place of, of immense personal need, I realized that Oh my gosh, there is so much out there that people are giving to each other these days in such a wonderful way. I realize it's all over the place. That's what I started the Joyful Podcast for because it's exciting to me. That's the best thing going on in the world. I mean, we've been in a little bit of negativity mode for a while now, politically and religiously and racially and uh, you know, demographically, things like that, it is time and uh, the time is now to begin shifting everybody right towards this beautiful place. And things like uh, meditation, mindfulness, the best parts of the spiritual message from so many different religions, all of those things, we are pulling together collectively, getting rid of the ones that are problematic not focusing on the negative, not focusing on the things that make us fight, right? We all know people that are on opposite sides of the spectrum for this thing or that thing. We love them both, right? So let's, let's explore how to, um, how to take everybody right to that, that amazing, wonderful spot where we can have joy in our lives and share the joy and move forward together. That is my introduction. Um, today is an interview episode. It's not just me. It's going to be somebody who's really smart. We have a clinical psychologist named Richard Labrie. On in a, in a few minutes, he'll be uh, calling in, or actually I'll be calling him, and we're going to talk about uh, what he does and just get some insight from Richard. So allow me to place this phone call. And you keep on seeking omnipresent supergalactic oneness in the meanwhile, <laughs> like Ace Ventura. <clears throat> oh, what a message. You have just attained it. I have. All right. That clap is to help with my uh, sound editing. Somebody told me I needed to do that, like make a clap. So you can see it visually on the, uh, the little sound screen when you're editing. If I edit, my whole thing is that 
I don't. I try not to edit. One, because I don't have much time. And two, I don't know how to edit. And three. I'm after the tone, and Google Voice will try to reach. Dr. Richard Lepre. This is Ethan Sherritt of the Joyful Podcast. <laughs> it sounded so official. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Rich. Hey, man. How are you? I'm awesome. Excited to uh, talk to you ever since we uh, chatted a couple weeks ago and discussed possibly doing this. Like I said, it's casual. So, you know, you're a, you're a conversationist. <laughs> it's a lot of what you do, <laughs> right? Right. Um, now, in terms of sound quality, would you rather me switch the speaker or does this sound good? Or oh, this, sounds, like this sounds really good. Um, I'm experimenting with a new way to record this myself too. So, well, well let me know because it's a it's a it's a newer iPhone that sometimes people have told me if I have it at a certain angle it obscures my voice. So, um, perhaps I'm learning how to hold it. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, maybe we should take a second right here. I'll clap for editing purposes, and um, you could try the other way, and then we'll just see how that sounds. Put it on, like put it on speaker. Um, All right. Okay, now I'm on speaker. Okay, I have you on speaker too. And say something else. Um, does this sound any better than when I had it up to my ear? I can't uh, really, I can't, I can't tell the difference. So whatever's more comfortable. Yeah, yeah, this is actually easier. Sir. All right, cool. All right, so now I'll do the intro. I'm going to clap again it's for editing. All right, so now I have Richard Labrie on the phone. He is a PsyD, a clinical psychologist, and a wonderful man who I, I met briefly, and we talk a little bit about some of the, the self-help type inspirational messages that I've been seeking and kind of been compiling into this podcast. And it, I was really curious uh, to hear about some of Richard's... Um, um, just, you know, what he thought about that and how uh, that's implemented into his practice and just, I don't know, a little bit about Rich. So, thank you, first of all, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> cool. And uh, we met in, in Los Angeles and in Pasadena, actually. And both of us had a little bit of a background, like a little IMDB page. You have quite a hefty IMDB page because... You, that was your career for quite a while of editing things and filmmaking and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm 55 years old and I became a psychologist uh, um, over the last, let's say, seven years. Um, and that was after a 35-year run in the entertainment industry as a writer, director, producer, and then primarily as an editor in terms of my main income and what I settled into. Um, so then I went to graduate school and got my doctorate in psychology. For those of you who aren't familiar with a PsyD, it is a doctor of psychology similar in, uh, I guess, spirit to the way an MD is a doctor of medicine. We're used to hearing PhD as doctorates often, but it's an equivalent doctorate with a slightly higher focus on clinical work over research, whereas a PhD might have a 
slightly higher focus on research than clinical work, mm-hmm. but they're they're interchangeable in terms of uh, uh, getting your license and practicing as a licensed psychotherapist or psychologist in any of the areas. So, um, yeah, and this idea of self-help and um, the media overlap in our conversation um, in my driveway when I met you. So uh, I, think it, I think it sparked something, uh, a possibility when you uh, mentioned your podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah good coincidence it was that, that you were willing to talk about that for me. Yeah, yeah. And for me, too, it's something I'm passionate about is the um, presentation of psychological and healing concepts by the media and also actually by some practitioners mm-hmm. um, in, in book form, in video form, in television form, and, and even in movies. Um, and uh, it can be quite helpful, it can be quite controversial, and there are some high-risk factors, um, somewhat evident recently by 13 Reasons Why, the uh, Netflix show, and some of the controversy around that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, can you so refresh me, I, what, what is that? To, is that about psychology? Why is, you know, well, it's about suicide, and it uh, is a Netflix series, 13 episodes, from the point of view of a teenager, uh, a high schooler who has taken her life. Um, oh, wow. And so I'm, I'm always interested in the overlap of where someone is trying to contribute, trying to do something um, positive, but without the proper consultation, uh, there can be risk factors. And... Um, there were certainly some issues that came up surrounding that show, and I think some serious mis- missteps that were made, um, and then uh, corrected, luckily, um, partially. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I think that this concept of what do we share in the media and what do we sell to people as healing, um, you know, is interesting because... Uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a cultural aspect to it. There's a a layman uh, aspect to it that's not completely worthy of dismissal. I'm not saying that, but the overlap of where careful clinical information should be researched and shared, and the vulnerability of people who um, consume uh, sort of like mass marketed self help um, ideas. Um, it's worthy of conversation, so that's why I, I was glad you asked. Yeah, it is worthy of conversation. Some things can go, um, man, something just came into my mind, and I'm sure this might be a little bit all over the map. I guess since you, you were talking about that show that deals with suicide, and I don't know anything about that show, except for I think I mentioned somebody liked it, that somebody I know likes the show. That's all I know. Um, uh-huh. So suicide is probably one of the most um, important things to that you can get involved with somebody's life to prevent, right? Um, absolutely. Uh-huh. It's That's pretty much like the ultimate. Let's just make sure that people reach out to anybody who might have signs of, of this. Um, and one of my episodes a couple, a couple weeks ago, I had uh, somebody on who had been suicidal at one point in her life. 
she had gone through a gender transformation, you know, within the last three or four years. But before that, she said that she was suicidal completely. So she kind of interjected and reached out to people and said, if that is you, if you feel any of those, please get help, reach out to anybody you can and give it a shot, you know, mm. just, just hang in there. Right. You know, please try something. What are, if somebody um, knows someone who might, who they think might be suicidal, are there certain signs that they should look for? Just since it's so important, are there, are there a couple of things that they should look for? Yeah, one of the signs is people um, making statements that sound like they're finite goodbyes, things that, that stick out as not a part of their regular conversational pattern, um, signs of depression. When people give things away that they normally wouldn't give away, not, not just cleaning house to declutter, but when, when they start giving things away that are important to them. There's a series of risk factors like that. When something yeah. just doesn't feel right. Um, so when your ears perk up, when, when you're listening to somebody or noticing their behavior, you're, you're kind of, your ears perk up like that. That's kind of a little bit different than how they normally. Yeah. 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 Listening to your, your when your antenna sort of um, turned towards something or the hair stands up on the back of your neck, listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, have a conversation, you know, getting, getting somebody to call the suicide prevention line, the lifeline, which um, the easiest way to remember is 1-800-SUICIDE, is, is a first step. If it seems like they won't, you can call yourself as a third-party caller, and the counselors there will give you advice in depth and will help assess via you as a third party. Um, okay. And, and, and that can be really helpful. Well, you know, that's one important um, thing that we just shared right there is 1-800-SUICIDE. I did not know that. So uh, that's a huge important one right there. Yeah. National, it's a national uh, line, and it will bounce to whatever center can take your call, even if your local one is, is uh, jammed up. Okay. Um, and All right. So I, I wanted to cover that just because it's so – if they're – you know, people search uh, podcasts when they're kind of – when they really need inspiration a lot, a lot of them, like if you put in podcast uh, search, you know, inspiration, motivation, that's a lot of it. So that right. it's kind right. of a, a group. Uh, it's like a cross section of people who kind of all have this thing that they they're, they're seeking, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you follow any other podcasts, but man, there's a plethora of them. Uh, I- uh, and this one, you know, I, it, it's more of a compilation and I'm, I'm kind of following along like, some of the techniques that I'm doing to, I guess, give myself um, what you would say therapy, just to improve myself, you know? Um, yeah. You had mentioned that when you start giving, just something worked for you. If somebody was really in need, you know, you, you can't just go and, and suggest them the book that worked for you, you know? I mean, if you're not a doctor. Uh-huh. Um, and so I have in, in my personal life, there is this one, this one book that, for example, it was, it was given to somebody that I know, and it, it kind of taught the practice of surrendering and letting go everything in your life to, um, mm-hmm. to kind of see what happens. And mm-hmm. that ended up kind of really 
spinning out of control for this person. And it was kind of a self-help type of spiritual, you know, enlightenment type book. So right. I think that that would be an example. It just, just kind of occurred to me of how a book can like not take into consideration uh, a lot of parts about their life, you know? It can kind of go sideways on them. Yeah, I mean, one, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite terms is um, regarding our sort of biological makeup is bio-individuality. And um, so I'll take a leap sideways into psychological individuality. And, um, yeah, you, make, you made the point exactly that if that particular book worked for you and out of your open-heartedness, you passed it on to somebody and it... Um, and hope it would work for them. Sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, that's no crime. It's, it's you know, you were trying to help. Other people do it all the time. And mm -hmm. then sometimes the fit is good. Yeah. So I think I, what, what concerns me sometimes is, so a clinician or anybody, any healer, licensed or non-licensed, will come up with a theory or will experience something themselves or with a client that was positive and changing. And there is then an opportunity to share it, which is a natural human trait. We're relational beings. And then when we share it, if we turn it into a book, we start working with an editor, we start working with a publisher, and their job is to sell as many of those books as possible. <laughs> and sometimes what I've noticed is the language in those books is, very declarative and very definitive. Hmm. This is what works. You know, you'll hear lines like, I'm just going to make this up. I don't know if this line exists, but you know, don't you wish that psychotherapy worked faster? Don't you wish this, that, or the other thing? Mm -hmm. And then there's a use of the language that purports to give you the answer regarding something that, that would work better or faster. The problem is, is that the, the history of the literature and psychological um, treatment doesn't support that. So, so you'll see cognitive behavioral therapy when it came into the forefront uh, with a theory mm -hmm. and a practice, and then, then it was tested. And in the studies, the outcomes were showing that there was a huge increase after about uh, in, in functioning and an improvement in psychological status after about 10 sessions. Mm -hmm. Well, two things. So some of the studies did show that, and that helped it take off as practice. But then, uh, of course, it was, it was grabbed onto by insurance companies because it was a way to save money. Uh, it was then grabbed onto by, you know, the field. And... I am trained, I'm highly trained in CBT as well as other practices, and I use CBT, mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. However, I don't use it with everybody, and I don't use it all the time, and I use it specifically in sync with what the client's needs are. I would never make a declarative statement that it should be used all the time. However, for a two-year period, Sweden uh, dictated that that would be the only intervention process used by their National Health Service. Oh, wow. Uh, and until they found in some of the studies, or at least one major study, that it was 
possibly doing damage to about 40% of the uh, population. Hmm. And so then they, they pulled that dictate and went back to an integrative, multifaceted, multimodal treatment approach. It doesn't mean CBT is wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad. But the very declarative statement that we must use this all the time with everybody was taken on by an entire country. Right. Um, you'll see that kind of language taken on in self-help books and on television because the job is to sell that as the best thing. Right, right. Um, so, it, But so, when I was like looking over your Facebook page, and, and if anybody hears this, they could check out some of your, the, your approach, your a Facebook page where you post some interesting articles, and they can get in touch with you that way. Yeah. Richard Labrie. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's Richard Labrie, comma, ID. Yeah. P-S-Y. And your last yeah. name is L-A-B-R-I-E. Um, right. And it's it does make it seem like it's more uh, free-flowing, and it, there is definitely not this, uh, like you said, declarative, declarative um, language. It's, it's a person-to-person -person approach. It's like one, it's definitely case-by-case. I, I so was it addresses looking, the psychological individuality of each client. The individuality, yeah. You used another word that was uh, right. when you were introducing yourself or introducing your field just a, mi a few minutes ago. I think that you used the word spirit. Spirit, huh? Did I? Okay. Yeah, it was <laughs> I, like. I yeah, I, you, I, because you were talking about the bio. What was it? Uh, oh, bio, in, bio individuality, and yeah. then I took a like a sidestep over to uh, psychological individuality. And yes, which deals with like the spirit, and uh, that was so. I, I did. I didn't even know if I heard you correctly on that. But uh, you know, people come. Yeah, to Yeah, I don't remember saying it. But... <laughs> maybe I just. Maybe I just. Uh, what's the What's the term when you um. Uh, we put what you think instead of what you actually heard. Um, you in oh, projecting. Projecting. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about spirit. I'm, I'm good with that. Oh, yeah, cool. Well, people come in with, uh, you know, their, their spirit it needs something, and you, you help them come around to it. Um, what would cause somebody to, to bail out? Like you said, if, if sometimes uh, it takes 10 sessions to start really telling, like, some... Uh, some results that are, are positive or some substantial? Well, no, that was, that, was a, that was a claim of cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and it became sort of uh, codified that you'll see in a lot of mental health, um, like state-sponsored departments of mental health, there's this 10-session limit. Hmm. Um, no, that, that, that number 10 is meaningless in, in terms of the wide range of integrative care. Um, I see clients and they're finished in seven sessions. I've seen clients for three and a half years, four years and, and continuing. Um, I myself, there's, I have a video on YouTube under, um, there's a series of videos called moments of meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I describe my own therapy process of 14 years off and on, uh, different periods of my life. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, 10 sessions was a construct created by the CBT study patterns, and it was grabbed onto. And I think that's what I was connecting to sort of like media and self-help and declarative statements that one thing will work for everybody or will work for the person sitting next to us. 
Um, too blanketed. It's actually not black. Yeah. So what do yeah. you, like, uh, one of the things I'm working through right now is um, I never studied the ancient uh, tradition from India known as the chakras. So uh, you've heard of this, right? And um, it, I'm really excited by it. You know, it's kind of like cracking open a couple of books on that uh, step by step. Is it's really felt healthy to me. Do you ever um, prescribe readings of any kind for people? Um, I don't prescribe. I, I I will sometimes mention certain things if they seem in line with the client's interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I'll do it carefully. Um, I'm sorry, I'm hesitating because uh, I, I want to put this, sort of like un, unveil what really happens in a therapy room. Uh, you know, the most ethical way to go about those kinds of things is to make it a collaborative experience with the client hmm. um, because the, the clinician is in kind of a one-up position the client comes in, looks at the doctor, uh, you know, maybe has them on a pedestal. There's an idealization period. And so I, I have to be careful if I express that a client should read a certain book that it might not be right for the client. And I might be using sort of like undue power. I, I work in every session to try to make it a level playing field and not a one-up experience. I want to collaborate. So I'll express it in a sort of authentic relational way where I'll say, you know, I was reading a book recently and what you just said made me think of a part of the book that dot, dot, dot. Yes. Um, if you're interested, I'll give, I'll give you the name. And, you know, it, it gives the client the power to make the decision or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, that's, that's really interesting that you, you said you have to kind of get through that, um, that I, ideal uh way that they see their, yeah the their clinician some of the people that i the inspirational people that we listen to whether it's tony robbins or something like that i mean there's definitely like a guru staff you're a guru rich i mean you know yeah <laughs> right right yeah we we have to be careful of that because uh yeah it can become a, a cult of one <laughs> and a cult leader one in the room if we're not careful. Uh-huh. Um, luckily, we're trained to, you know, watch out for that and um, and avoid it. Yeah. Um, so. So you do a lot of um, a lot of people getting over trauma, and a lot of that yeah. is probably relationship based. I would imagine, right? Like, you know, a traumatic thing happened in a relationship. Relationship, parental, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to childhood. Uh, also, a significant amount of, um, I think it's sort of like a pervasive low-level trauma that, that becomes uh, bigger is um, workplace conflict, mm-hmm. demanding or uh, misattuned middle manager, the co-worker who's... Uh, uh, stirs up the pot for no apparent reason. Um, hours, you know, work stress based on working 60 or 80 hour weeks in certain industries. Um, 
I think there's a level of, of current current pervasive uh, distress, if not trauma, to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's but a... everything back to childhood sexual trauma, physical trauma, uh, neglect. Um, uh, yeah, I deal, I deal with um, a lot of that. It's not all I do, but... Taking away, do. Taking away people's um, levels of distress and anxiety and allowing them to have less discomfort about these things, right? Have you ever, mm-hmm. do you have patients um, who end up making, like, do you have a story about somebody who's made a big life change based on, um, like, say they did have work trauma or something, and they get a new, you know, outlook on life and end up changing their career or something like that? people who are in that process um Mm -hmm. i i have had some people um who came to me while they were going through that process i don't know if i have the definitive perfect podcast story for it (laughs) but i will tell you i I will tell you this Mm -hmm. the clients they they surprise me they impress me um sometimes i i I say to them that i i I feel that they're better at therapy as a client than I ever was. Um, and I, and I truly believe that, um, the great, the great thing about the job is they'll come in and just express a change or a discovery that led to a change that, you know, blows my mind that took such bravery and, um, Mm -hmm. things that they faced uh, during the week when I didn't see them, uh, the aftermath of a session, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with people through the transition out of, um, okay, I'll, I'll try in, in order to protect confidentiality of, of, of a client, um, that I worked with a client who was in a serious physical injury, you know, that involved enough trauma to create, um, PTSD, uh, symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, and in the client's building up of, of their life after that accident, uh, they entered a business project. And not only did they build the business from ground up, you know, as a business person, but also physically did a lot of the work. Hmm. Okay. And that, that was a, a big part of their healing of their body, their mind and body together was, was doing this work because their body had been so physically damaged in, in the, uh, in the event. And they came to me as they were sort of peaking in that business, had reached their goal and wanted to get out of it and sell it. And I worked with the client through that process and it was, it involved a lot of ambivalence because they were giving up something that had saved their life essentially in rebuilding but wanted, but they were frustrated with, with really where it had gone um, in terms of hitting its limit, and we got to a point where that did happen. The sale happened, and recently the client began coming back to me and, and reported the new business has gotten up on its first foot. Yeah, and it's an exciting thing, and. Uh, it has a lot to do with the person's spirit. When you mentioned spirit, it, 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 emotional health, 
mind and body, mm-hmm. spirit, meaning and purpose. Um, I talk a lot about meaning and purpose with people. Um, not only meaning and purpose in terms of uh, doing good in the world, but really meaning and purpose for the person. Not everybody has to become uh, Mother Teresa or, or you know feed the world, but meaning and pur- purpose for that particular individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's exciting work too. That, it's a blend of, you know. You know what? I, that's, yeah. To me, that's what's one of the most exciting things is like when people come to a point like me, um, wondering, how, am I fulfilling a meaning and purpose? Have I, am I exploring that enough? Or, or it can change. But meaning and purpose, like you just said, man, that that's a big thing to me. And I wonder what what different ones people come to are. Like with me, um, I guess it's just, I'm still kind of in an exploration of meaning and purpose. And what I... I've started this podcast because, hey, it's kind of giving me a purpose. Just <laughs> can finding a purpose be your purpose? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was recently talking to a client who was in the middle of, of a different client who's in the middle of, of considering a change. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he talked about a um, making a list or a, or a, a goal board. And uh, it is the beginning of an exploration. And we talked about looking at what are your broad interests? What are your specific interests? Mm-hmm. What, um, what do you like to do creatively? What do you like to do with your body? What do you like to do with your mind, with your, with your, uh, with your voice? I mean, you can start as specifically as your five senses, or mm-hmm. you can go out into abstract existential areas. Existential, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that uh, we just began some of that work. Um, okay. So yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, listen, can can I? You could cut this out if not, but can I? Can I share how you and I met and how symbolically that fits with what you just said about yourself? Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah. Yeah. So Ethan um, contacted me. I was selling an old Sears. Uh, car rooftop cargo carrier for, you know, trip. And, um, yeah, yeah, I put an ad in Craigslist and Ethan contacted me and came over to get it. And you had your son in the car, in the van, right? Yeah, Jack. Uh, and you were literally, the car was practically idling and ready to just leave and cross the country. And, and you were picking up this, this cargo container and, uh, you very quickly and eloquently expressed that you were on a journey, literally, in your car and um, leaving Los Angeles and some of your work as an actor to explore something more meaningful to you. And uh, and so everything, I mean, visually, uh, transactionally, you handing me whatever it was, 40 bucks or something, yep. and, and us having a conversation was all a part of your journey, and, and uh, it struck me. So Cool. You know what? And let me add to that a little bit of before um, before I got to your your place and was able to talk to you about that. There was another one on Craigslist that I had gone down down towards like the Inglewood area to go check. I drove a quite a long way to go, and I think I was going to buy this one. You know, it was it seemed like a great deal, and and when I got there, 
right when I came up, I, I parked my van in the driveway and I walked up and the girl that was selling it, she got out and said, okay, here it is. And then you hear a click and the lock clicked and she could not make that thing open again. She was like, I can't believe, she was like, I can't believe this is not opening. It was, this has never, ever done this before. Right? And so I was like, look, I can't buy this thing if we can't. I mean, we sat there and tugged on it for a while and she tried to like troubleshoot it. And I was like, wow. I mean, I, I know I just drove all this way, but, and, and I'm not getting this because of this strange, bizarre thing where we can't open it. And, uh, you know, but my, my kind of new mentality that I was in, I remembered saying to myself all of that time in traffic and driving, and I'm not getting this. And this thing, this big checkpoint that I needed to scratch off of my to-do list, getting this, this cargo carrier still had to be done within a day or two before, <laughs> before I left. But I remember not panicking at all and not even like, I don't even think my, like if you were monitoring my stress, you know, by pulse or something like that, whatever can be monitored to show distress. I don't think that even spiked. Whereas before, I don't know, a year ago, I would have been like curse words flying. And, you know, I just said like, I don't know why that happened, but for some reason that happened. And, and I'm like, and I just kind of like said, fine, whatever, you know, I'll keep on rolling. And sure enough, I found yours the very following morning and went up there and not only did, um, did it, it kind of opened my mind to talk to somebody who was, who made themselves a, clin, a clinical psychologist and who practices that. It, it opened my mind to the idea that like, oh yeah, there's so many different ways that people are restructuring their, their spirit and, mm-hmm. and helping them. And I hadn't even, and I think that's, I, regardless of if we get like a succinct um, podcast story that people are like, oh, I remember that story from that podcast. I think that the big thing is that people who, who look for podcasts and stories and books as their spirit, as their self-help, it didn't even, it never occurred to me to get a therapist. I, it, it's not in my family. It's not in my, that's not my thing. So you are, it's really interesting and fascinating to have, um, to have you in your world, you were a client. You had, you went to a psychologist, right? Yeah, I mean, this makes me think, would it be worth trying um, for your podcast for me to just tell my story of how uh, at age 49, I decided to go to graduate school and spend a ton of money and risk everything to become a psychologist after having a, you know, relatively successful career, mostly as a film and television editor, because there is a specific story there that I can tell, um, well, if you'd like. I don't really want to go into detail. In the- I don't want to go into details about your story, Rich. <laughs> yeah, of course I do. That, yeah. sounds, that sounds really cool. That sounds... Uh, that's that's kind of one of the things that well, I, needs to be shared is that like were you really going through something like that at 49 years old to say wow big change yeah all right so go into that 
And you directed two features, okay. I, I learned this morning. You directed two features before the digital age. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I made three feature films. One of the producer and co-writer and co-editor called Blood and Concrete um, with uh, Billy Zane and Jennifer Beals and Harry Shearer and Darren McGavin when he was alive. Um, and that was a great experience. We were like kids in a candy store. Somehow we found this money uh, through Columbia TriStar Video and uh, IRS Media and, and my partner, uh, Jeff Reiner, at the time, we, uh, we, got, we got to make a feature and <laughs> pretty much made it the way we wanted to. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. Uh, after that, I made a feature which I wrote, directed, and produced and edited using credit cards. So I guess it seems that I'm a risk taker. Uh, uh, called, called Joe's Rotten World. And um, it went to many festivals, did really well, but then our distribution fell apart. And so I've sort of I've been sitting for 23 years with, a, uh, with that film, just in a digital copy oh, that, that's not out there. Real. Oh, wow. Um, and then I was hired to direct a film called Good Luck with uh, um, Gregory Hines and, and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. And th those, all those happened between 1989 and 1994 or 96. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I transitioned out into uh, editing mostly. Um, for me, I, I kind of found that even though I had been directing since about eighth grade, I, I, really, I really couldn't, couldn't deal with it anymore. It was, there was too much politics. Uh, and it was just too hard. I mean, I, I made the movies I wanted to. They were they were well received, but I it just the level of horseshit. Uh, once I got to this sort of pre studio level, um, uh -huh. uh, just was a bit much. And I don't think I was a good enough diplomat. I I had this ideal in my mind that I would be able to just be creative and be a director, but. Uh, the diplomacy required was, was too much. And I was making better money and more steady money as an editor, and I could sort of contain my work alone in a room and craft the material. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I ended up in sketch comedy, and so I worked on Mad TV uh, for 14 years, and uh, before that it was the Ben Stiller show, his original one on um, HBO. Uh Stayed in sketch mostly, did blue collar TV, um, and some other little things and some small features. Uh, but, you know, I, I, basically what happened was I sort of reached what I felt was a glass ceiling. I did not feel that I could continue working those kinds of hours or be subservient to the uh, level of either organization or disorganization in a particular show. Mm -hmm. um, basically, basically, I would work a longer day if everybody else was disorganized. If the people above me didn't really have it together, or if there was a bit of a misstep or some unforeseen circumstance, and I'd have a longer day. And after a while, I was like, I, I don't want the rest of my life to be that. Mm -hmm. I want more control. And reality TV kept coming up uh, and sort of forcing itself into the methodology even of, of shooting comedy, 
just let the camera roll, shoot a bunch of stuff, don't plan it, and then let the editor figure it out later. So <laughs> wow. the weight of our it, it kind it kind of increased. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, hey, how much, uh, Ethan? How much can I swear on this podcast? Oh, as much as you Am want to. Yeah, sometimes that helps with Excellent. ratings. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. So. <laughs> So basically, basically, if we live, look at this as a theme, as I got so frustrated, I basically said, fuck you, I'll be a doctor, in my own head. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and later, when I was becoming a psychologist, and I realized, you know, I, 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 I'm spending most of my time being gentle and healing, there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance between my initial impulse to say, fuck you, I'll be a doctor, and yeah. sitting and helping vulnerable people. But... I just couldn't really take it anymore, so um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Were you going to I therapy did, that at that time, or no? That's what I was going to. I'll 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 add that thread now. I have to backtrack to the year 2000. I'm 38 years old, and I'm five years into Mad TV, which was a very good experience for the most part, but a very difficult show to get on the air. We were doing an hour of variety sketch comedy per week, which is very difficult to pull off. And I was also editing in the summers when we had our breaks. I would edit a feature or I would do something else. And I did that several years in a row. And I had a collapse in May of 2000. And the collapse showed up bodily. Um, You know, if we think about mind, body, and spirit, Mm -hmm. I probably was having an issue in my mind and spirit. But it showed up somatically. Uh, my my body stopped um, uh, stopped moving one morning. I was sitting. My parents were visiting. My kids were eight and ten, and we were supposed to go to the zoo. And I sat down after breakfast in a chair to put my shoes on, and I couldn't get out of the chair. And I'd been having feelings of exhaustion, and had just worked more than a year straight on highly pressurized, you know, shows in a, in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get up and I felt like I had the flu, but I didn't have the flu. And I just told everybody, you guys got to go without me. I think I have to go lie down. It was funny because we had just woken up <laughs> and I'm an energetic guy. So, there, yeah. uh, so I went into a period where I was eating a lot and losing weight. I was trying to sleep but couldn't sleep. And I was in what what's sort of called um, an, an, like agitated, depressive, exhaustive state. Hmm. And then I began to have some, um, some mild suicidal ideation. Um, and for me, that was enough of a warning to say, I got to go talk to somebody. Uh, and I found a therapist, his name was Larry Lewis, and I started seeing him, and I started seeing him twice a week, and I sometimes saw him for kind of crisis sessions, because sometimes when you go to see a therapist or a psychologist the first time, uh, things open up, and you get into a bit of a chaotic change process, and, in, you know, if you have the support system, you can be open to that chaos without completely falling apart. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I, I was able to take that summer off in hiatus and I didn't I didn't take a feature on and I went back to Mad TV in September but I was in therapy at that point and 
It was a rigorous, difficult process. And uh, saw him pretty frequently for about a year and a half. And then things stabilized, and I was seeing him once a week. And then entered a really productive period where I would just sort of go in for booster sessions, or I'd take a period of time and see him and, and rework on things that came up. All right. Can, and, can I interject uh, and say, like, and, and like kind of hold the brakes on um, one of the words that you used? Uh, yeah. Rigorous work. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what was rigorous about it? Because I've never laid down on a couch or, you know, um, had a session like that ever. So I, I want to know, like, the rigorous work you're talking about. If you can, I mean, I don't want to make you elaborate. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, laying down on the couch is more of a psychoanalytical process. Um, I would say Larry was more of a sort of anal analytically informed therapist, uh, much like I am. Um, we, we sit face-to-face -face and talk. Uh, the rigor comes from um, the depth of the things that come up and that the client and the therapist discover in the process. And, um, you know, it's not like you have to sit down with a workbook, although some people do. Mm -hmm. Some people like to journal and dig into their things. For me, it would sort of just process in the room, and then during the week, things would continually show up for me. Um, I would be hit by emotions and thoughts and connections and insights that seemed to be powerful and out of the blue. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the process. And, and, you know, this connects to earlier in the, in the podcast um, when we talked about uh, what works in therapy, declarative statements about, you know, this versus that technique or this self-help book versus that. Mm -hmm. um, a good 40% of the change process, the factors involved in, in a client's healing, 40% are called client factors. And client factors are the level of insight that the client is willing to try and move towards. The support system outside of the therapy room, the ability to come to therapy, the compliance with the schedule of therapy, whether it's once a week or twice a week I or see. whatever. Client um, factors, yeah. And client factors and the desire for change. Mm -hmm. um, so those those are about 40% of the change process. Another 40, 35% are the rapport between the client and the clinician, meaning the clarity of language, the emotional bonds, the empathic attunement of the clinician towards the client, and um, the fit and the bond, the relational aspects, cover another 35, mm. 40, sometimes 45 and in, in the literature, generally, technique is only about 15% of the change process. So I'm injecting that into sort of the rigor question. You know, the rigorous work kind of comes from inside, and yeah. it comes from the attention and attunement of the clinician. All right. So I would imagine, like, before the session, like, if you're in the middle of that of a stage of that that's you're saying is a rigorous a lot of work like you're you know you're getting a coffee and you're about to go into the session and you're just like oh geez what's about to happen i know this is last week it was tough right <laughs> yeah yeah i kind of, 
I covered that on my Facebook page, the feeling of like, uh, I don't really want to go today. Yeah. Um, that comes up sometimes. And other times you want to rush there, you want to rush there and share something. To get something and, off, uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have, you have um, it helps to be open to the variety of, of feelings. Um, this just occurred to me, like, so, when you said, like, um, there's, sometimes there'll just be, like, too many emotions or... Um, that come up and it, it's so funny as <laughs> as an actor just in your regular life a song will come on or a, somebody shares a story with you or you see a movie and it makes you feel a really intense emotion and and, and you run with it uh-huh. and you see how intense you can make it and uh and you kind of like let that roll and you're like, oh, wow, that was really intense, you know? Um, uh-huh. That's like an enjoyable, it's like an enjoyable thing. Just, you know, pers- personal, uh, I guess, differences, you know? Uh, like, well, I think you make a really good point, though. I, I think part of therapy is clients learn to tolerate their intense emotions, and and I would say I agree with you that I've learned to enjoy mine more. Oh, good. The process. Good. Wow. Relate to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, part of the what I what I try to document, and I I, I searched for, I, man, I just like brainstorming and scratching off a bunch of words that didn't really make sense. I searched for how to describe what I feel like is going culturally we're shifting um and i guess there's three versions of of side d uh type of i looked it up today i can't remember what the three are you you mentioned one of them cognitive behavior another one is humanist right humanist dynamic have you heard of this phrase well there's 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 there's, yeah yeah humanistic Humanistic. uh is an approach there's um Psychodynamic, which is probably um, has the longest history, connecting back to psychoanalytic, like um, Freud and stuff. These are these, are, yeah. These are these are all what they are. Is they're um, they're called um, um, theoretical orientations. Yes. So all of them, they all are a part of psychotherapy, and every clinician is trained in a variety of them, but. Based on who we are as a person, mm-hmm. we tend to gravitate more towards one or the other. But most of us use bits and pieces of all of them. Um, that makes perfect so, sense. And, and yeah, these theoretical orientations follow the history of, of psychology too. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the the one that kind of the the one that matches with what I I ended up calling like my podcasting efforts is, you know, documenting, I was like, what is going on? Why are so many people studying the things that they're studying, writing the books that they're writing, making the, the quotes and memes that they're doing? What is this seeking that we're collectively doing right now? And I am summarizing that under this umbrella of mindfulness. And, mm-hmm. and I think that like I see it everywhere. I'm not a, a guy who usually has selective seeing because I'm aware of that type of phenomenon. You know that I'm seeing that because it's 
it's I'm thinking about it. I'm aware of that. But I do mm-hmm. I do sense it everywhere. People are ready to like kind of abandon this uh this other like kind of tense freaking negativity that collectively people would describe for like the last 10 or 12 years. And so mm-hmm. I call that I call that um a revolution that we're kind of shifting towards mindfulness. And I think that's going to solve some problems for our society. Um, we're going to shift towards, towards a little bit of elevating, hopefully each other. And that it was when you said the theoretical orientations of um, psychology, that humanistic dynamic, a humanistic one that I read today, it was the one that mentioned, uh, society and culture and going back to it it seemed like it kind of assumed that oh it said the assumption that all people are good and that like your life is supposed to be good so how do we make that happen and where did we get off of that right that that kind of seemed to be i mean on wikipedia anyway (laughs) that's what i that's what i gleaned from that it's the the assumption that like we're there's good out there for every single person where did we go off how can we understand that individually? Because that's going to help the, right. coll- the collective. I don't know why I just went on that tangent, but I guess I wanted to to um, say that there's one of those those theories that really sparked my interest as far as like, you know, that's why I'm learning um, the chakras. You know, it probably covers a lot of, um, a lot of, like you know like it's it's really similar to maslow's hierarchy of needs right it's like you really focus yep. on how to bring about the base needs first and then you kind of go through and see where right, where where are you off yeah when you brought up chakras and spirit i i i, I yeah i, I want to say that um i think they provide a a fantastic structure, kind of a scaffold for people to examine their lives and their and you know themselves, yeah, yeah. and their emotions. And they are somewhat um, reflected in different cultures in different ways. You have Maslow's hierarchy. You have um, you have the chakras. You have the basic concepts of alchemy that you know lead into colors and then you have the concept of, of uh, you know earth wind air um, fire uh, you know all of these are useful and and the traditional religious approaches so when I work with a client if they kind of hang their hat on any of those scaffolds mm-hmm. I try to work try to work within it ah, within their language I see and without having to be an expert in any of them, and without veering away from the practice of psychology, um, but really, really connecting with the client and how they cognitively, emotionally, and somatically experience the world. Mm. If that's one of their tools, then we talk about it. And uh, those can lead also into, you know, foundational psychological principles like, um, like symbols and archetypes, going back to Carl Jung. Um, you know, this is how human beings work. This is how we express ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dude, I've not heard arc- the word archetype 
probably in like seven years. And then I've heard it again in the last, I've heard it three times in two weeks. <laughs> uh, oh, and I, I, want, I wanted to give you, a, since you, you're inspired by humanistic um, approaches to psychology, so there, um, Carl Rogers was credited with sort of the founder, being the founder of that theory. He's a wonderful term. The, the main intervention process, the sort of spirit of the engagement with the client is to treat the client with what's called unconditional positive regard. Whoa. And he, he called unconditional positive regard. The three words put together beautifully describe what you were mentioning as the entire, uh, you know, aim and, and, and philosophy of, of the humanistic approach and mm-hmm. you know, healing the self and then healing the world. Um, and, uh, you know, even people who practice in a different theoretical orientation, and when I've talked to them, they, there's, there's often an element of Carl Rogers in, in there. There's often an element of CBT that bled into psychodynamic work and Jungian um, psychotherapists will that's a part of the psychodynamic family but there mm-hmm. it's important for all of us to connect with the client at a basic level of positive rapport mm-hmm. and understanding and empathic attunement um, like I'm on your side so, like we I'm on your side right I'm on your side and I understand you even if we disagree or we're going to try to move in a different direction or the, and the therapist becomes, uh, maybe more directive to open up a different, different pathway of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, empathic attunement means that the, the clinician is understanding the emotional and cognitive processes of the other person. Um, you know, which creates an alignment. Um, mm-hmm. so, and empathic attunement is a, I mean, it's a word that comes up a lot in another branch of psychodynamic uh, theory called self-psychology, which uh, is a, a, pr- a particular structure developed by Hans Kohut to, um, it's a way to conceptualize the development of the self. And uh, okay. empathic attunement is a part of that. It's, it's, a, it's a great way for your listeners maybe to... Uh, if they're going to research any of this. Uh, empathic attunement. Uh, empathic attunement and self-psychology, which is not self-help, it's different. It, it's, the, it's a psychological approach that deals with a particular um, structure of the developing self from mm-hmm. childhood forward. Um, okay. So, yeah. You know, no, one thing that's kind of new-agey, I guess. Here's like a new-agey thing. It just occurred to me... Um, when I was reading a little bit about that this morning, one of them deals a lot with the subconscious and getting people to, you know, and I think that the subconscious uh, is something that people are more and more like maybe World War II, you know, they had no idea like (laughs) to explore that. But now they got like, Every you know you can get on Instagram and somebody's telling you like how to tap into your subconscious or you know you you breathe and you let these uh, you know you like you embrace everything 
everything and there are techniques to do it. So like the subconscious is, uh, is that more like what, what theory uh, deals with that the most? Well, that goes all the way back to Freud. So that's the foundation of psychoanalytic um, work is that we are essentially an iceberg. Uh, the tip of the iceberg is the conscious, and mm-hmm. we have unconscious, unconscious drives um, under the water that are quite powerful. And uh, so psychoanalysis, the client would lay on the couch, the therapist would sit behind them, mm-hmm. um, so as not to pr- uh, create any uh, projections based on the face or body language. And the, the clinician That's why. would just let the client... Um, free, free association was the method. Mm-hmm. It would elicit free, free association, thinking that um, what came up, what the client expressed, was coming more directly from the unconscious, and then they could have a conversation guided in that direction and the, the, the foundational idea is that if you can bring to consciousness what is unconscious uh you can work with it and if it's some unconscious drive that's causing distress or low functionality bring it bringing it to consciousness is the first stage towards changing it or healing it yeah um that blended into psychodynamic theory which you know also embraced developmental patterns of our lives and um and then within that you have young you have humanistic you have um uh, you know several other branches self-psychology and then the cognitive uh, side of therapy you had cognitive behavioral therapy um and uh and then you know tons of other orientations because the field keeps growing mm-hmm. and uh you know does it feel like it's growing? Does it feel like like it's always changing? Yeah, yeah. This is not this is not something where uh, I mean, I mean, the human mind is so complex that um, you, you're not going to get a definitive answer like uh, this particular medicine or this particular neuron is going to uh, help or hurt a particular person, yeah. a specific person. And, that way every time it's 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 much more complex because people are complex and they're they're diverse yeah and the the changes that we go through now like on a wide scale are so quick i mean we're just like barreling through changes now like so fast i think also it's important that with the with the developments in psychology a new development doesn't mean that old practices are um, obsolete, and uh, I, I really, I really latched on to your topic today because I wanted to make that point in strong terms, and that goes back to the declarative sentence thing. Is that when you read a self-help book or even a new psychology book that purports that this new approach is the best or better than everything that went before it, I would remain a bit skeptical because. Mm-hmm. There are still people doing psychoanalysis out there, and they are in, they're alive today, so they're informed by a lot of newer research. But just because modern psychodynamic or modern CBT or modern humanistic exists, or Tony Robbins exists, or other people exist, doesn't mean that older 
styles of therapy like psychoanalysis, uh, uh, flooding or exposure therapy, it doesn't mean that they don't work. Right. Um, it, it, yeah, so that's my kind of bugaboo with the field is when somebody uses a declarative statement, they're usually trying to sell a book. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets healed with a particular self-help guru or a self-help book, then their enthusiasm makes them want to share it. Yes. But if remember how declarative it is, then I think we're more open to the diversity of, of, of people and, and how they can be helped. Man, I, w- I want to. I wish we could get into uh, that. I mean, and that's one of the cool things is I, I could just sense like your how how much not only you got when you were a client of your therapist, but how much you actually want to help other people. I mean, that was definitely evident in just talking to you the very first time I met you, and that's why. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can tell us like these sincere desire to help and and that's why I think that you know what that's what I'm seeking right now is sincerity and like uplifting people's <laughs> spirit and uh-huh. you know and I got that from you it's, and from that clinical side so I was like wow a clinical side of that such a cool um, other thing to kind of balance out what a you know, what I'm compiling, what I'm trying to, to, to journey through. Um, I, I want to say that how could we get into like a specific, not like a case that you're, that you have right now. What, what specific questions do I have? Like, I wish there's like some kind of thing where I could say, tweet, tweet this out, have a question for the clinical psychologist. Um, um, well, you think would you you want you'd like to hear about a case? Yeah. Or you you you'd like to? Um, yeah, like a, all um, the academic terms aside, like none of those matter. Just like how does like if somebody comes in with X and blah blah blah, how has that transpired? How what has happened with them? You know. Right. Um, well. I don't know if you can. I mean, you it, you probably can't talk about that, um, because. Well, I can maybe I can uh, let me try and disguise a couple of cases from the past. Yeah. Um. Where. Um. Some of these concepts came into play. Um. um is is it okay if I talk about a comp a very complicated disorder? Um. Or, or would you rather hear something simple, like uh, simpler in terms, like depression or anxiety, or a complicated disorder like dissociative identity disorder, which is um, used to be called multiple personality disorder? Where, where you uh, can edit this part out? What yeah, would you well, like me to? can a functioning person have that complicated disorder? Is are we talking like somebody who's in a hospital? No, no, there are a lot of people functioning. It's, it's actually. Um, uh, a lot of people who can high, function highly with that disorder, and some who can't. It's, and there's a fundamental, and they have a fundamental identity issue, right? Uh, dissociative identity disorders generally um, uh, uh, 
uh, an outcome of uh, extreme childhood sexual abuse, um, repeated sexual and physical abuse with um, a level of kind of mind control because when a child is sexually abused, the abuser generally works to prevent the child from sharing or displaying that, um, that event to anybody that would report the incident and get the abuser in trouble. So they there's can, a bit they, of a kind of a, a yeah. They can control them, huh? I mean, they just control them. Yeah, well, it's it, it's not so uh, difficult to do with children. Children are in a learning capacity, and when you combine trauma and physical pain with that, it uh, it's it's a, a pretty nasty combination. Um, but you know, I could I could sort of talk about um, psychodynamic and relational approaches as well as cognitive approaches to that disorder, mm-hmm. or uh, and and I sort of. Uh, create a, a, a combined client. Yeah. Um, yeah. A combined, or I can go with a combined like, client. That sounds good because we can kind of hear a, a little bit of different aspects of various people you've helped out. Right. So, um, so I have a specialty in that disorder. It used to be called multiple multiple personality disorder. It's now called dissociative identity disorder. Because over time, the field discovered that it's not truly a full personality. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's an identity structure within the client that was developed to protect them and, or to have them perform a certain way. Um, and uh, it's a real thing. Um, there was a lot of controversy about it in the 80s, like maybe it wasn't a real thing. And then there was a... Uh, kind of an urban hysteria about it as if it existed everywhere and and these satanic cults were taking over the world. The truth is it exists. It's been around for a while and it's neither everywhere nor is it fake. It's, mm-hmm. you know, reasonably somewhere in the middle like every other disorder. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there are, like any other treatment, when somebody comes in with that, I have a tool bag in my head. How am I going to work with this client? So if a client comes in and they're highly suicidal, the first thing we do is create safety. We come up with a safety plan. We come up with coping strategies. This is very direct cognitive mm-hmm. work. Um, sometimes make lists. Talk about what are the triggers that brought on your last thoughts or attempted suicide. Look at those triggers and then figure out how to um, deflect them, cope with them, or diminish them. Maybe it's reaching out to a friend. Maybe it's a, an exercise. You, you explore with the client what has worked in the past to keep them alive. And you don't get into curing the disorder, and you don't get into discussing trauma. You really want to keep the person safe. So, you, so that's very, um, it's very directive. It's very cognitive. It's you know, A plus B equals C. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, sometimes they call uh, elements of it seeking safety. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different terms for it. As the treatment develops, what one of the things a client who's been physically and sexually abused from a young age, uh, especially with DID is that they're generally hypervigilant 
about safety. They don't know who to trust. And so I will often find that these clients have tried a lot of different therapists. Some of them have not been trained in this. Or some of them they just didn't feel safe with. There was something, their antenna, were, uh, we talked about antenna earlier, is, is highly attuned. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's trying to create a space of safety and trying to get across, again, empathic attunement and move into a relational psychodynamic rapport where they trust me and where I show that I understand where they're coming from and where their pain is. Mm-hmm. And the relationship develops. And so you, you get into a more modern version of psychodynamic therapy where the relational connection creates enough safety where questions directed at the client can open up unconscious concepts. I see. With DID, it's a little bit more complicated with DID because sometimes the question that opens up something from the past can be highly triggering because often these clients, their past is so filled with abuse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now on the other end of it, there are, there are specific exercises that we can do. Um, we can, we can, uh, let, here's an example. Um, working a very, very long time with a client, the client expressed um, certain internal negative phrases, critical phrases that were coming from a part of herself that was an internalization of her abusive father. And she had the, 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 the uh, bravery to write some of these out. Mm. And then we typed them up together and we printed them. And then we did something that could be highly risky for some clients. But in this sense, I felt through, you know, communicating with the client and she felt that it would be safe. And we got, we got a fire bucket and we did a session outside in a private area and we burned each one of these phrases that we wrote on strips of paper. So that's like a very direct intervention, but it, it, you know, I, I don't recommend it for anybody who's not a clinician. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't recommend it for all of my clients with CID. I only did it with one at the right time based on my clinical judgment. Yeah. And um, what would that so do? You can see where they're... Is that like ritually well, good or did that do something like to that, that patient's mind, you think, that it seems to me like that would kind of empower them? To say, like, look, I can, I can destroy these. Like, I can put them in the physical, and then I can destroy them with fire. Right. It was highly, it was highly risky, though, because there was an internalized part of the client that was uh, an element of the father mm. that was abusive. So a, a client like this might um, might resort to self harm to punish themselves for having destroyed those words. I see. But we very, very carefully worked on it so that that didn't happen it ended up being healing in the way you said there was some empowerment to it um that's great but on the other hand from a psychodynamic point of view there is also an element of trust and affiliation mm-hmm. where we're sitting together doing this she's with a safe person and is able to do this thing that's empowering with someone else that 
has never been done before. And so that's the relational component. Mm. Um, and, you know, relationship is part of the dynamic process, the, the interfacing between consciousness and unconsciousness and the dynamics that go on there, um, yeah. as well as the other dynamics that go on between human beings. Would it, uh, is it, how do people with that type of disorder, that type of traumatic past, um, even if it wasn't like childhood sexual abuse or something as, as horrible as, as that, but if it was something along those, you know, that people do have that deep seated, like they won't admit it's hard to even discuss it that, and it takes work just to even get them to like mention it. That's a really traumatic, Uh that's a really traumatic thing. I would imagine that a lot of times they can't find a partner, a romantic partner they can trust. Um, Do you find that to be the case? Sometimes. Um, Some people are married and with kids. Some people are alone. Um, But yeah, I think the part I latched onto that you said was that there's um, an understanding that it's a disorder that most people don't understand and Mm -hmm. it's risky to express it. Um, The irony though, is that this, this internal structure is, is quite logical from my point of view and it's workable. It's treatable. Ah. Um, So, um, so that's one example of an extreme case. Mm and, and in the middle of therapy with, say, somebody experiencing depression or anxiety, I might veer between psychodynamic and cognitive work, depending on what the issue of the day is. So, so uh, let's say somebody who's depressed, uh, a particular kind of trauma in their past, but their descriptions of their role in the world are highly negative. We might go to a cognitive approach where we look at the evidence that the you know the client thinks that they stink at their job and everybody hates them or something like that. You can mm. you can work cognitively with that, but there are other times you might work with levels of unconscious or with building the relationship, the attachment mm-hmm. um, dynamic in the room to try to repair past dynamic uh, attachment. Uh, issues so it's a very movable creative yeah. uh you know process i guess i'm starting to grasp those three different methods like you're talking about um I, you know they seemed so i didn't understand them before um even though i looked into them but now I'm, i am starting to see how you can to you it's like you can easily tell when you're moving from one of those uh, approaches to the other like their methods right like to um i don't know why yeah. it just, just occurred to me like uh, as an actor you know if there's a, a wide shot you're not using uh the method that you learned in uh you know stanislavski you're not learning this internal thing because it's a wide shot you're falling back on that that week that you spent with the the clown to make a to make some yeah. some bigger body movements so these are like different, you're like, oh, well, it fits this shot, it fits that, it fits this client, it fits that client, and you can kind of shift to whatever is needed. Yeah, if a client processes their life through an emotional realm, mm-hmm. we're going to work with the emotions in order to connect 
And then if we're going to try to add um, coping skills that come from a cognitive area or something, then we, we, we work towards that but not going to force cognitive processes on a client that really wants to be in an emotional connection early on because that's their primary way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I have to make adjustments. But, yeah, I mean, that's why it takes a very long time to become a psychologist and then even after that to become licensed to practice yeah. independently. Um, it's a lot of hours of... Uh, of practice as well as the class time. Yeah. But it does instinctive, just like, you know, you as an actor, those, those instincts become second nature. Yeah. So what, had you been kicking around other things when you said, you know, screw this, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm not editing this damn sketch comedy anymore. Had you been thinking like that type of doctor before that couldn't just have spontaneously come in? That phrase came a little bit later. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I started doing the sort of factors of myself, the goals. I, uh, the economic downturn happened in 08. Mm-hmm. So now we're like a full eight years after my sort of physical collapse. Um, and reality TV kind of kicked up and the pressures in, in even the comedy business increased. So I was feeling ready, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And then um, uh, Mad TV ended, and there was very little work out there. I only worked about 10 weeks in about a year and a half, uh, around 2009 to 2010. So I started exploring things about wellness and things about, uh, I tried to develop a soap product. I tried to develop an energy drink. I started Mm. selling uh, and designing uh, solar electric panels. I, uh-huh. I was exploring everything. They all had their limitations. Meanwhile, reflecting on my therapy, I was back in therapy, and I wanted something that encompassed all my interests, which were sociological, political, humanistic, um, helping others, meaning and purpose. And then it dawned on me that one of the biggest impacts of my life was going to therapy. Yeah. And I liked the lifestyle. I saw in my therapist a certain lifestyle, a kind of uh, being your own um, boss, structuring your day the way you want it, and a job where you had to take care of yourself in order to help others. And I hadn't taken care of myself back in 2000. So the pieces started to fit together. And he suggested to me, this is like that question you had about, do I suggest books? He said, you know, you might want to get your feet wet and you can get free training and it's really good clinical training at the Suicide Prevention Center. So I became a crisis line counselor, which took um, eight weeks of training, eight weekends of training, as well as um, a probationary period. And then I did that for a year and a half. And I, I did like the clinical work and the risk factors and the pressure. I could handle it. And so I applied to grad school. And then ironically, I got the two best editing jobs I'd ever <laughs> had. Yeah. So I, I ended up editing Workaholic for a little while, my first year of school. And then my second year of school, all the way through the end of my doctorate, I edited Key and Peele. 
So I was on my way out of that career, but I was doing the best work I'd done, and those people were fantastic. They were the opposite of some of the frustrations I'd had in the... So, you know, I I got nominated for two Emmys, and I went to that ceremony at the same time as I was about to graduate, and and then I tied it off. I stopped editing, and... uh, I'm in private practice now. So the journey, I do see a lot of people in life transition because they can recognize that I'm older and I've only been in practice, uh, you know, private practice almost four years and I in see. practice with clients for about seven. They recognize that uh, I must have gone through a change when they see my gray hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, that means you know some things. That's what that means. Means you got some stories. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and at the same time, when I'm with a client, I don't advocate for them to change careers or throw everything to the wind. I, I respect the concept that people can change, even if they don't change jobs or change their lives from the outside. I, you know, therapy itself, as well as my own journey, gave me a respect for the fact that people. People want to be satisfied. People want meaning and purpose, and people are open to change. But I, my job is to help them find it, not impose it. And um, that's been the great part of this work. Ah, wow! What a what a important difference that is. Help them find it. Yeah. Um, nice. Well, uh, I, I think I have some really cool things that you talked about, and. I, I learned a lot, and um, man, do you do any uh, couples therapy? <laughs> I do. Um, you know, uh, um, I, I I do mostly individual, but I have a handful of couples. Couples uh, make up a smaller portion of my practice, uh-huh. um, but yeah, I do. Yeah, so you talk to like both people. That's always interesting to me because you're not just with one, but with both. Yeah, it's, the dynamic is certainly different. Yeah. Like, they're, they're at the same time or, like, different times? They're there at the same time, although occasionally you'll do a, uh, a, a one-off session with one partner if it's clinically indicated uh-huh. that um, it's not to share secrets, but sometimes there's a, a certain topic or dynamic that's worth exploring with one person or the other person. Um, sometimes you'll bring the whole family in. Um, yeah. Because in couples work, you're doing more, it's more of a, a system you're talking about, the two people in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes bringing in other people from the family system. But, but mainly, you're with both people. I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be, um, man, that might be helpful to some people, I'm sure. Um, so, so I wanted to see if you had any stories about that, but if that's not like the main crux of your practice, then you don't have to go into that. Well, it's, it's, it's not the main crux, but it is, uh, I find it to be generally shorter term Mm -hmm. because people want to sort of get back to their lives. Um, the interesting thing is though that. The ther- from the therapist's point of view, the goal is neither to keep the client together or break them up or anything. The goal is to follow what the goals of the clients are. So, 
Huh. Some couples come in and they want to strengthen. Some couples come in and they say they're going through a divorce, but they want to do it amicably or um, figure out the best way to co-parent their children afterwards. Oh, um, wow. Some come in in conflict and they don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, and so remaining neutral is one of the important parts of it, to try to keep an eye on whether we're pulled in one direction or the other, either towards one of the clients mm-hmm. or towards a particular outcome. Um, yeah. So we're there to we're keep, uh, keep, keep neutral as well, much that, as we can. That does make it sound very useful and helpful. So maybe people hadn't considered that, like, it could be to strengthen, it can be to be amicable, it could be help us, we have no idea what's going on, but we need something. It can be any of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. All right, Rich, so let me ask you this before we go. If I have like a specific thing, maybe could I bring you back on and, or I'll shoot you an email and we could talk about it um, on like a later, I don't know, months down the road or something. Yeah, yeah, because I do feel like I veered in a lot of different directions. So as you edit this, if you want to revisit, um, you know, uh, d- yeah, definitely get in, get in touch. Cause, okay. Um, hey, man. The I word... never quite know. <laughs> the word raw, I always remind people when I was titling this thing, it's called a raw journal. Okay. And one thing, one thing, uh, this is not for the recording, but when you, when you banner this, um, there's a there's a, a bit of a, a, a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding sometimes in the difference between a therapist and a psychologist. Okay. Um, a, psych, a psychologist is a doctor of psychology, and if they're licensed to practice, they will generally practice psychotherapy, um, or sometimes they won't do psychotherapy and they'll do uh, uh, psychological assessments and tests. Mm-hmm. Um, a psychologist can do a number of different things, um, and therapist is one of their roles. Psychotherapist is one of their roles. Um, so when people say the word therapist, it can mean a licensed counseling ther- uh, or a licensed clinical social worker can be a therapist. So they're licensed by a different body. I see. Um, and they have a, a master's in, in uh, counseling psychology or clinical psychology. Uh, uh, marriage and family therapist, you'll see LMFT, so that's the licensed marriage and family therapist, mm-hmm. master's degree, um, and they, they do uh, therapy. Both of those jobs are definitely called therapists. Uh-huh. A psychologist can be, some of them don't do therapy, some of them run agencies, some of them only do testing, some of them do psychotherapy too. Um, some of them teach decide not to get licensed and only do research. Um, And the psychologist is the doctoral level, uh, Mm -hmm. except in school. A school psychologist can be called a psychologist at the master's level. So that's just for your notes. Yeah, okay. So that just sheds light on the, the term therapist as opposed to psychologist, yeah. Yeah, it's not for the recording. It's kind of boring, but um, so <laughs> you could you could banner you could banner me as either Richard Labrie's ID or you could banner me as Doctor Richard Labrie. Either one is fine. Gotcha, Doctor Richard Labrie. Okay, that's what I prefer. M- might want to get more from you later. Just more spe- like if I if I get something specific, so I'll, I'll email you at that at that point. Cool. 
Yeah, and you can, so you, you've, you've got my Facebook professional page, and then you could also look up, I wrote some things on Psychology Today under Find a Therapist. If you just look me up in California, uh, I'll okay. come up, and there's a page there with like three short paragraphs that kind of give the spirit of how I practice and uh, my information. So. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, and let me know if you uh, if you need anything, all right? Um, I don't know what that would be, but... If you want to borrow my cargo car topper again. <laughs> <laughs> well, where are you now? Are you out in Colorado or where are you? I am. I am. This is, I could not have designed a, a better like few days or actually a week now that I'm in, in nature. I mean, I'm literally feeding chickens and, and donkeys and horses in the mornings and I can, I'm looking out at, man, it's such an expanse, like the view that I'm looking at right now. I'm way up in the mountains. It's it's really awesome. It's been so good for me. Wow. Yeah, it's been like just what the doctor ordered, really. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, good luck with it. Feel free to edit any way you want. I think I veered off into other things, but whatever is interesting to you is fine with me. So. Okay. Thank you, Rich. All right, well, take care, okay? Okay, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. All right, and that was Dr. Richard Labrie, PsyD, clinical psychologist. All right, well, thank you so much for listening to this. Once again, this has been the Joyful Podcast, a raw journal of the Mindful Revolution. God bless and namaste.